Back in um, 15, 17, the 16th century, only a couple of us were around back then, but you might be able to remember, <laughs> Ron, <laughs> I wasn't thinking of you, mate. <laughs> there was a little uh, Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther. He was kicking around. Uh, pope Leo X, who was not the greatest pope that ever lived, but, but he described Luther as a wild boar uh, that invaded and trampled the vineyard of God. I think that's why I like Luther. But Luther famously, he's, one of his most famous things is that he went and, and he nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany um, his 95 Thesis an action that is attributed to, to sparking the Reformation, if you like, and, and, and you know, by consequence, uh, the birth of the denomination of churches that you know, we all sit in now. Um, we have a, the Baptist church because of the movement of the Reformation. Anyway, that thesis, which had 95 lines in it, that's why it's called the 95 Thesis, began with a line that read, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the entire life of a believer be one of repentance. And Luther was rolling out of the words of Jesus as he began his public ministry. We can read about them in Matthew and Mark. And Luther's purpose throughout his his thesis was to go on and emphasize that Christianity is a personal relationship with believers and God, a personal relationship with believers and Jesus. And they don't necessarily need any other medium or or popes or or clergy to, um, to be involved in that. But the personal life of faith in Jesus and the personal activity of repentance of the believer themselves towards God. But selling the Christian life as a life of uh, repentance seems a little depressing on the surface, don't you think? Like what images come to your mind as you hear Luther describe our faith as one lived out in continuous repentance every day, day after day, month after month, Are you filled with joy? Or does the idea of repentance fill you with a little apprehension? Does it give you a sense of chores that you have to do? You know, when you get home from school, you've got a bunch of chores you've got to do uh, before you could go out and hang with your mates. We're in a series called What You Believe Matters. And we're taking time to look at... uh, what we've stated uh, that we believe in. Uh, We've got this statement of faith and it's got these nine articles of faith in it. And the hope is that as we move through these uh, nine articles, that they would go from being something that are just on a, in a constitution or written up on a board somewhere or something that we just give a nice assenting nod to in a partnership class um, to something that we've unpacked, that something that we've explored and, and hopefully something that we've understood and, and is starting to shape uh, how we gather together, how we worship, how we uh, live out our faith uh, in the world. Today we are looking at our seventh statement of faith, the necessity in order for salvation of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in order for salvation to be an an internal uh, saving reality in your life, you must be marked by repentance towards God and you must be marked by faith in Jesus. Without these two evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, 
the witness of Scripture is that the confidence of your salvation is not in good soil. It's in shallow soil. It's in rocky soil, thorny, weedy soil that it has not and may not ever take hold as a deeply uh, germinated, regenerated and growing conviction in your life. Without repentance toward God and faith in Jesus, your salvation has not taken hold of your heart, to use the imagery there that I used out of um, Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13, of of how your heart has uh, reacted with the gospel about who Jesus is and what he's done uh, in God's plan for us and on our behalf. So what does repentance and faith that we can have a, a confidence uh, that the work of salvation has actually taken place in us? What does it look like? Well, firstly, faith and repentance are inseparable in operation. They're like two sides of a coin. Uh, they never exist in splendid isolation of each other. John Murray, he wrote this, he said, uh, Faith that is unto salvation is penitent faith, and repentance that is unto life is believing repentant repentance. Saving faith is is uh, permitted with repentance, and repentance is permitted with saving faith. You can't separate uh, turning from sin in repentance and coming uh, to faith in Christ. You can't separate these two things. And that's why you hear Jesus and the biblical writers group these two actions together uh, all the time, as, as Luther pointed out at the top of his 95 Thesis. Jesus began his earthly ministry. When he did, he didn't begin it by putting an emphasis on himself and the deeds uh, that he was doing, but on the message that people need to repent and believe the message because the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what we find in, as Jesus tees off in ministry in Matthew and Mark. And then on repeat throughout the book of Acts, in places like Acts 3, 19, 11, 18, 17, 30, uh, 20, 21, and 26, 20, and in the passage that Venlo read to us today in Acts 22, in Acts 2, 22 to 39, we find that after the preaching or the explaining of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done for us in, in some way, shape, or form, then repentance towards God and faith in Jesus is either a witnessed or confessed, or as in our passage today, is, is commanded as an appropriate response to the gospel, to the work of the Spirit. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. Have your heart uh, overmastered and, and, and proclaim a new reality of forgiveness of sins and a, and a standing before God. Let these inseparable operations be the tangible expressions that conversion and salvation have taken place, have visited your soul. The repentance that Peter speaks of in our passage today, understood appropriately or even better yet experienced appropriately is far from the the dreary uh, life of sorrow and grief, is far from a chore, you know, just trying to uh, get about the activity of, of keeping God happy or even taming God over our sin. In fact, it should never be like that. Biblical repentance, gospel-driven 
repentance. There's this heartfelt conviction of sin, a, 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 con- a cr- contrition <laughs> over the offenses towards God, a, a brokenness of heart, if you like. And then a, a turning away uh, from the sinful way of life and a turning toward God in a God-honoring way of life. Repentance is the changing of our hearts and our minds and our attitudes towards sin and then in turning toward God, accompanied with a change of actions and practices and priorities towards sin and God. There is both humility in this and then there is both delight as a consequence. As we saw in our reading today, It is that people have been shown where their lives have been lived in opposition to God and rejection of his son Jesus. And they've been shown their need for salvation. And they've been shown that if they place their faith in Jesus, God then is faithful to forgive them and bless them, lead them into eternal life. So what we have to do is there's this transaction. We have to actually agree with God about our sin. That, that, that the way we've lived is an, an offensive way to live before God. And then we have to turn away from it. We have to agree with God that we need to be saved from uh, sin's priority in our life. And we need to be saved from sin's punishment. We actually have to agree with God that he sent the son into the world to do this, to save us in repentance our hearts through the initiating and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit are transformed from opposition towards God to agreement with God. Repentance, therefore, involves knowing in one's heart that this was wrong, I was wrong, I have sinned, and God is grieved. Repentance is the changing of your mind at the core place of motivation and understanding. And this type of repentance will lead to a change of actions, a change of life. It's a picture of whole life transformation. It's what Paul describes in another one of those passages about repentance in 26.20. Paul declared, that means he spoke the gospel out. He shared the gospel about Jesus first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then throughout all the regions of Judea and also to those crazy manky Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. There's this whole life thing going on. A dimension of repentance, uh, an action and a practice of repentance that is often uh, not given enough consideration is not just the turning away from sin, but the actual turning toward God, turning to live face to face, with God because now this is where the hope and the confidence that we have through faith in Jesus comes alive repentance done out of a high regard for God and not a high regard for self creates this radical new dynamic of personal growth you see the more you see your own flaws and sins uh, as your life is contrasted against the life of Jesus the more precious, the more uh, electrifying, the amazing grace of God appears to you. As your life, as you understand now that your life is accredited and accepted through the righteousness of Jesus and all that he's done, 
And the more um, aware you become of God's grace and acceptance of you in Christ, the more you drop your denials of your sin and, and, and your self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of your sin. Repentance puts to death the sin under all the other sins, and that is a lack of joy, a lack of understanding, a lack of intimacy in Christ. It's our faith in Christ that leads us to a more genuine space of repentance that affirms salvation has truly visited our song, our soul. <laughs> I had a little note here about a song we could write, sing there. And this is why Paul writes in Romans 2, 4 and 5 that it's the, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's why Peter paints a picture of a patient God uh, waiting, waiting for people to repent and turn toward him, to keep having the soil of their hearts turned over, turned over, examined, until they come to a place of agreement with God. Read about that in 2 Peter. It's the picture that Jesus himself paints in Luke 15. Uh, the parable... Um, there's the story of the, 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 the irreligious son. I can't think of it. Prodigal, thank you. The rebellious, irreligious son realizes that life in the presence of the father, uh, what it's like, and he, and he remembers that, and he actually repents, and he turns back towards the father. But before he can get home and before he can execute his, his plan of groveling and self-loathing, the father meets him. The father runs to him. Greets him, embraces him, takes him in, gives him a new, new fit of clothes and puts a ring on his finger. Welcomes him into the family. There's, there's, there's life, there's relationship. You do not bring your broken life of sin to a malicious, vindictive, impatient God who is just, just waiting there to kick your head in, make you feel like you have to climb some mountain, endure shame, Sit in the naughty corner, maybe what the Catholics might call purgatory. None of that. Because a loving God, a just God, a patient God has done all that needs to be done about your sin when Jesus was exposed to shame, when Jesus encountered suffering, when Jesus faced and experienced death, not for his sin, not for anything he had done, but to represent us to be there for what we had done on our behalf. And Jesus never once in all of that, he himself never once lost faith in the goodness and the greatness of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus because in, in Jesus, Jesus actually, he, he perfects faith. He shows us what it is to, 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 to live authentically, even up to death. The writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the, perf the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you would not grow weary, so that you would not lose heart. Repentance is not a work uh, of us, it's a work in us. So that our hearts and our minds are changed. 
It's seeing your sin in all its selfish offensiveness towards God and seeing at the same time God's selfless response to that sin in Jesus. It humbles us and it affirms us at the same time. That's why Luke in Acts and Peter describe God as granting uh, repentance. It's, it's, it's a gift that leads to life. It's not something that we earned, that we worked on, but it's something that's granted to us from God. And it's this kind of experience of repentance that is based in faith in Christ that tells you that you have eternal life attached to it because it leads you towards God. It leads you to, to want to actually be in his presence not hide from him, not run away from him. It has you seeking his face, not hiding from it. It's a total positional change, not just a legal one, not just an intellectual one, but emotionally and motivationally in your heart, the core of who you are. This is the experience of repentance that is attached to a concrete faith in the finished work of Jesus. It knows, it understands it has felt that we are positionally changed in our approach to God and before God. It's why Paul writes in Romans that, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it leads to forgiveness of sins and the removal of divine discipline and the restoration of one's um, communion with God. So that now we can approach God with a boldness and an intimacy. The writer of Hebrews talks about the boldness that we can have to come to the throne of grace. Paul, all through Romans, about the intimacy that we have. Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians uh, that he actually tells us about how we can know if our repentance is attached to a faith that leads to salvation or if it is absent of a faith. Uh, that leads to salvation, actually leads to death. Paul has written previously a very strong letter confronting the Corinthians, we don't actually have it, of, on their sin. And while it, it, it pained Paul to write such a, a direct confronting letter, and it pained Paul that it caused, actually caused grief and sorrow in the Corinthians. Like They're like, ah, oh, they're examining their lives. Yeah, we're like that. This is no good. But as he writes this letter, Paul's grief has turned to joy because his letter has stirred in the Corinthians a grief and a sorrow over sin that was godly, or more literally, that it was according to God, which means that their sorrow was in agreement with the mind of God. It was a sorrow that, that prompted conviction of the Holy Spirit, that their sin had actually offended God. It was not simply that they'd upset Paul or anyone else for that matter. But now, their sin out on the table before God, the Corinthians who had been indifferent towards God and denied, denied or sought to rationalize the duplicity of their faith were now living, were now living this earnest life of faith in their zeal to do what is right. If before they had denied the, the duplicity, the, the double-mindedness of their faith, this time, they're eager to clear themselves of their sin. To, yes, yeah, we, we've been living opposed to God. Not wanting these failures to re re reflect poorly on Christ and the gospel. 
Paul's letter through the Spirit had set ablaze in the hearts and the lives of these Corinthian Christians an indignation towards sin, an indignation that they had offended God. Paul says this is the kind of godly grief that leads to a life of salvation that brings you back into, into reality with God and a life without regret. Grief over sin that takes a high regard for God and the sin itself leads to a life in relationship with God and a life of freedom, a life of authenticity. Because you know you've been fully known. You, you, you walk through the practice of being fully known by God. So what, what's left to accuse you? What's left to hinder you? To be used against you? There's nothing that isn't known and out on the table. You haven't tried to hide sin or, or you know, rebrand it, try and polish it up and say it's not so bad. You've got nothing in the closet that's coming to get you. Because of the faith that you had in the finished work of Christ, you let go of what you were grasping onto for salvation. These things that we build with our own hands, these excuses that we make when we fail in our careers, in our, in our reputation, our, our religious practices, our marriages, you let them go, these excuses, these rationalizations, you let them fall to the ground around the cross and you grab onto Jesus and you just hang on. And while your hands are holding him, they can't pick any of this other rubbish back up again. Sin cannot be taken hold of again while you are clinging in faith to Jesus. In this, we elevate God's glory above our own. We elevate God's name above our own. We cherish what God has done for us more than anything we could do for ourselves. This is the kind of godly sorrow and repentance, change of mind and action that leads to eternal life, Paul says, which is not merely you know, the length of life. It's not like you're just going to live forever but the, but the quality of life, you're going to live with intimacy and boldness in relationship with God and indeed with others. David's prayer in Psalm 51 is the classic picture of, of what this looks like. David there, he writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your character, a little paraphrase, blot out my sin, for I know my sin is ever before me. This is the Holy Spirit working in David's life going, Dude, look at the train wreck you've made. And then David says, because listen, David misses no one in, in what he did. Sinned against uh, Bathsheba, sinned against Uriah, sinned against the nation of Israel, like his family, you name it. He misses no one. And yet he says, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's talking to God. And in the psalm, he says, the sacrifices of God, the, 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 what God wants us to come to him with, are not religious actions and duties, but a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Humility, humbleness, awareness. Oh God, you will not despise these things. 
And there's another kind of grief that Paul talks about in sorrow that we can feel, uh, another kind of repentance, if you like. But call, Paul calls this a worldly repentance. You could easily just as much call it a religious repentance and sorrow. It's the kind of sorrow and grief, uh, repentance over sin, because of what it does to us primarily, and not what it has done towards God. We are sorry because of the consequences to us. Um, uh, the consequences to us, it will, it will bring loss to us, uh, punishment to us. It, it, it may mean we lose our job. It may mean we look bad in the eyes of people. It may mean our spouses are angry with us. It may mean we go to jail, loss of reputation. But because of our high regard for ourselves and a high desire to be publicly affirmed and, 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 and readmitted, we want to avoid this at all costs, so we repent but the repentance is all about restoring our image. It's all about restoring our dignity. It's all about restoring our glory, our name. We're worried about what this has done to us. We are sorry for how the consequences affect us. We are not sorry for the sin itself. And we are indifferent to how it has saddened God. This is the kind of repentance that is actually devoid of faith in Jesus. And it's all about us being able to control. It's all about us being able to, to manage the PR work around this. It's trying to keep God happy through your efforts at best. And, and in reality, you are, you, you are literally declaring no faith in God's provision found in Jesus. It's still you saying, I, I, can, I can get repentance in life based on my own efforts, on my own groveling. God, God should bless me based on, on what I've done. He should forgive me based on my own trying to restore my name, which is the kind of repentance Paul says leads to death because it's based in our self-righteousness, our ability to atone for sin, and not in faith in Jesus, in what he has done. His sufficiency it's not based in that. It's a terrible place to be in. It's the kind of repentance where you're never sure whether you've done enough. Never sure if you've been miserable enough, self-loathed enough. Never sure if you deserve to be forgiven. Because this kind of repentance is based in what we are doing and not in faith in Christ and what he has done. Which means we need to examine not just the nature of our repentance, but also the nature of our faith attached to repentance because the nature of the faith shapes the nature of the repentance. Faith has, to some degree, been a bit of a junk drawer a word that we just describe, that, a way of describing some kind of confidence that we have in a set of claims, some kind of confidence that we have in a story or, or description of something and someone. It's often just used analogy as a reason for wishful thinking, hoping for an outcome. We're just going to have faith that this happens. Who knows? It's mysterious. It's not clear, but we've got faith. Biblical faith, saving faith, is not blind faith. It's not wishful thinking faith. It's not believing in something in the absence of facts. It is constructed from the news about Jesus and the claims about Jesus, his actions that happened in human history, 
In order for someone to believe in and trust in the saving work of Jesus, a person must actually first come to terms with the facts. You've got to engage with the story, with the facts around Jesus. But they, may, but they must know that Jesus existed, that he is real, live, historical person, not just a myth, not just a fairy tale. But bare knowledge of the facts does not constitute a saving faith. A person must know the basic facts and comprehend them. Sorry, a person must know the basic facts, but then they must comprehend them. In other words, knowing that Jesus lived is not enough. One must understand what Jesus did in his life. You've got to now comprehend this stuff. He claimed to be God in the flesh. Uh, he, he claimed to be God's son and equal with God. He claimed that he was the only way to be saved. He claimed that he was the only way to encounter eternal life. Uh, he said things like, I am the bread of life. I am living water. I am the resurrection. He said things like this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. On and on and on went Jesus about how he is ultimate reality and how life is only found in him, how eternal life, salvation is only found in him. But it's not enough just to believe that Jesus existed and that he made these claims. The sinner must place their trust in Christ's claims. They must believe in these claims they must have them come to life in them in a in a in a in, some, in a kind of like an overmastering uh, motivation that jesus is the incarnate son of god and that he has actually come to save sinners through his life and his death and his resurrection these these truths these things have got to actually become transformative in us faith is not merely mental assent or acknowledgments of facts even facts about the gospel faith is being transformed by them and then and then living out of them james tells us that the demons completely agree with the facts about god and jesus but they don't live an existence of faith in those facts that leads to a life of salvation faith that leads to salvation is faith that's transformed our hearts with these facts, with this news, with the love of God for sinners. Saving faith, according to Paul, is a work of the Spirit. It's a gift of God, grace that opens our minds, allows us to see uh, ourselves first in the light of what God is saying to us, and then allows us to see what God is saying to us about Jesus. There's such a thing too, as, as, as temporary faith, which I think is what Jesus is talking about in the analogies of the soils. It seems for a while that we, that we trust the news about Jesus. Now, when I say temporary faith, I'm talking about temporal consideration. I'm not talking about temporal effect. It's temporal in its consideration, and it's in, 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 the, in the quality of a, it's devoid of illumination. But temporary faith often falls away at the first hint of hardship because it has no genuine faith in the goodness of God. It likes the idea of salvation, but personal change, transformation seems a bridge too far because faith and trust in Jesus has not gripped the heart. But saving faith 
is a firm conviction and trust in the person and the work of Christ. Well, the demons understand and comprehend the facts about God and Jesus. This kind of saving, and they, and they, they tremble at it, but the, the saving faith, faith for a Christian leads to joy and confidence It's a changed understanding and approach to God. Joy and confidence in the goodness and the grace of God, which bestowed salvation through Jesus Christ. Not through any works that we will do or have done or anything that flows out of our salvation. Even though salvation and faith in Christ leads to works, those things do not affect it. Genuine biblical faith creates within us a heartfelt recognition and confession of the truth of the gospel and a desire to humble ourselves before Jesus as not just our Savior, but our Lord. While faith can be experienced and used in various ways, saving faith is a faith that not only knows and comprehends facts about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it trusts in the personal work of Jesus for salvation alone. And it always accompanies repentance that changes our posture towards God, where we agree that our sin is killing us and that his son is saving us. And out of that agreement, out of that changed experience, our lives become a song of continuous Repentance. This is what Luther is talking about. He's not talking about some dreary experience. He's talking about some, some wonderful, glorious experience of faith in the sufficiency of Jesus to transform our hearts that we might run toward God and not away from him. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you. Uh, that you, I don't know what the word is, has, have designed this quality of life of repentance and faith so that it is not something that crushes us. It's something that confronts us. It's something that convicts us. It's something that, that makes us realize that our lives are actually offensive towards God. But, but in that moment, we are not crushed by that. We are actually liberated by that because we, we realize that you have done everything in order for us to be able to get that out on the table and, 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 and then be known by you and be loved by you. Our response, our repentance, our faith is one that says we trust in Jesus to bring us into life with you. We trust in Jesus to have dealt with everything wicked and wrong with us in order that we might be able to grow now into a life that pursues you, that, that lives in face-to-face with you and, and grows in uh, increasing holiness. Would you work in our lives that we might uh, more and more uh, pursue and participate in uh, understanding our faith, preaching the gospel to our souls again and again, that it might get us to a space where we can repent and just do life with you and know that we are not going to have our heads kicked in for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.